Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. So this week we're now in the portion bow. Where we left off last week is we had seen the first seven plagues that God had poured out on Egypt. And we saw continually, repeatedly, Pharaoh hardening his heart, being stubborn, being strengthened. And then we all know that there's ten plagues. But last week we cut off at seven and leaving three in reserve for this week. And so we might ask, well, why did God choose to cut this off right in this place? And how do we even know, right? And within the Torah portion, within the Torah, uh, it's broken into sections called portions. And it's usually set off by at least eight spaces that designate a break in the text or a blank line that separates the text. And so you know, if I were putting things together, I probably would have put all 10 plagues together in one portion, got it all done at once. But perhaps God said, you know, it's time for a popcorn break. The show's about to get good. Everybody awake? No? Okay. Bad joke. So, <laughs> but, okay, so he's getting ready. He just moved in bringing fire and hail, fire and ice together as one to demonstrate conclusively that there is one God over all of creation. Pharaoh saw it. He recognized it, that it couldn't be his gods that were acting, but yet he still remained stubborn. So now this week we see plagues 8 through 10. We see God give the new moon, the new calendar to Moses and the children of Israel, the Passover, the Exodus, and then also the sanctification of the firstborn. So there's a lot that takes place in this, this week's portion. And I feel like the main subject today is about the sanctification of the firstborn. Now, I know the sanctification of the firstborn is at the end of the portion, but I think it's, it's really this key element of what's taking place in the Passover, what's taking place in God's redemption. How is it that he brings restoration to the entire world except through his firstborn? And so he says to sanctify the firstborn because he's the one who redeemed the firstborn. So, so too, he calls us to sanctify Yeshua, sanctify our Messiah. And in 1 Peter 3, Peter, who wrote 1 Peter, says, Instead, sanctify Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet with humility and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that whatever you are accused of, those who abuse you for your good, who abuse you for your good conduct in Messiah may be put to shame. So he says, sanctify Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify the firstborn as the Lord in your heart. And be ready to give an answer. I was speaking with someone earlier this week about the question of, are people ready to share the gospel message? 
Do you really know what the gospel message is such that you could share it quickly and easily with, with people to show them what the path of life is? And it, what, at first thought, it's like, oh yeah, that's easy. And you think, oh, well, how would I go about sharing it? And ultimately, my answer is, in the moment, we'll know how to share it. But we should be prepared and then allow the Spirit to move in us to give explanation as He desires in the moment. But the question of, like, why is it so important to be able to share the gospel? It's, it's an explanation of the hope that is in us. It's an explanation of the faithfulness of God to all generations. You know, in, in some ways, we, we can simplify the gospel into the idea that, you know, Yeshua came and died for your sins so that you don't have to, and he gives you everlasting life when you trust in him. That is nuts and bolts an important aspect of the gospel. It's not the complete gospel, but it's an important aspect for people to understand that it is through Yeshua that we have right relationship with God. He is the door through which we enter into relationship with God and life everlasting. And it's through His death and resurrection that we can enter into this. But even if we step back, you know, the gospel was preached to Abraham right? The gospel preached to him was not Jesus died for your sins. The gospel preached to him is that through him, through the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's only really good news if God is faithful to perform his word and do what he said he would do. Only if God would provide the way for people to enter into this life. So the gospel really hinges on God's character and nature and his provision. And he did that. He provided through Yeshua. And he's provided throughout all time for his people. Just as we sang earlier, he is the same God. He was a healer then. He was a savior then. He's a healer now and a savior now. He's always been moving in redemption, seeking to restore that which was lost to mankind. And so with this, we have a hope. And we have a hope because Yeshua lives. He was dead, but now he lives. There is a hope that that which is dead can be brought back to life. There's a hope to that which is lost can be restored. And there's times and seasons of renewal. And that's where we find ourselves this week as God is moving in redemption of his people to bring them out of Egypt. And he says to Moses that he's entering into a new month. So let's look at Exodus 12, verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Okay, so God is lining out that some, uh, there's a new beginning taking place. Prior to this, the first month of the year was what we know as Tishrei, which we call now the seventh month of the year. But God's, and, and that is still, uh, that is still a new year. It is still the first month of a particular calendar. But God was saying, I'm giving you a new cycle by which you're going to count time. I'm redeeming you out of that which has held you captive. I'm bringing you to myself as a new people, setting you free. 
And this is going to be a mark of this new beginning. And this is going to be the beginning of the months for you. Rashi says that the word Chodesh, which is used here for the month, could be understood not as month, but as renewal. Okay, so when you see, and he speaks of it as saying, when you see the moon in its new phase, it's now a, it's the head of the month for you. It's the beginning of a new month, but it's the, it's the beginning of a renewal. Okay, because the moon disappears, right? We can't see it on one day. Then the next night, we begin to see a sliver and the moon begins to increase and increase until it is full. But then again, it begins to wane until it goes back into disappearing and it goes through a cycle, a cycle of renewal, of increase and decrease. And within that, that's one example of many cycles in life, right? We walk through various things in life where we're increasing and we're heading to a mountaintop and then we can have periods where we dip down into the valley. But even as we go into the valley, we still have this hope that is within us that God is faithful and he will bring about a renewal for us and bring us back from the valley to the mountaintop. One of the key themes that is repeated during this week's portion is the idea of needing to remember the exodus from Egypt. Over and over, there's a call to remember the exodus from Egypt. On Friday nights, when we say our blessings, we speak about the Sabbath being a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. The new moon is a remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. The sanctification of the firstborn, remembrance of the exodus of Egypt, Passover, all of the holidays. Everything's pointing back to a remembrance of the exodus. God tells us to do this because no matter where we are in life, it's important to remember that He is the Redeemer. He has redeemed and He will redeem. And within this period, within what God is doing, He's birthing a new nation. He's birthing a people who will be His. And you know, we're talking about the moon and its cycles and how it goes from not existing to its fullness and back. When we look at the story of the Exodus and we look at what took place in the life of Moses, how the children of Israel experienced this redemption, they went from a place of slavery and affliction to a place of hope when Moses came the first time hope that they would be redeemed and that their burdens would be lifted. But then they were only saw that that hope was destroyed as Pharaoh didn't listen and he increased their burdens. But then even from that place of having hope destroyed, yet again, God sent Moses back and began to operate with great signs and wonders to redeem his people with mighty works. And so they had their hope restored and their hope renewed. That's, that's what we see with the life of Yeshua, right? We have the same aspect where the people sat in great darkness and behold, a light shined upon them. Yeshua came to 
to be the Redeemer, the Messiah in whom they hoped. And the disciples believed the Messiah has come only to see him die on a cross. So they saw their hope destroyed, their hope dashed. But then on the third day, on the day of Yeshua's resurrection, he appeared to his disciples and hope was restored. A new hope began, a hope that is everlasting because Yeshua lives forever. So we have, we have this hope that really is an anchor of the soul because Yeshua stands now and forevermore. So if we look, talking about the sanctification of the firstborn this week, if we look in, in Exodus 13, we'll see the scripture speaking of this. Now, Exodus 13, as I mentioned, is at the end of our portion. At this point, the plagues are already done. The Passover lamb has already been slaughtered. The Exodus has happened. And now God says to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. And then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Okay, and then he goes on to continue speaking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, unleavened bread has already been introduced earlier in this portion. And so he begins to talk about the sanctification of the firstborn, pauses, says, remember the Exodus, remember this week of unleavened bread. And then from there, he comes back and begins to speak about the firstborn. Okay, so then, so, so he took a break, came back in verse 11 and says, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Okay, so there's something that stands out in this scripture and in the scripture we're going to read here in a moment. But he says, Pharaoh okay, says, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. And so I redeem all the first of my sons. And God speaks about how all of the firstborn children of Israel are his. Okay, so something's going on here in that. Let's actually, let's go to this in Exodus uh, 12, 12 through 13. 
God tells Moses, he says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so he, he tells Moses that he is going to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. In fact, within the scripture, he says that all the firstborn in the land of Egypt are dead. This is, uh, hmm. yeah, here it is. It's in, it's in Exodus 11. When he's, he's speaking to Pharaoh, he says, every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Another translation of that shall die is every firstborn in the land of Egypt is dead from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the millstone. He's like, all of them, they're dead. But even though they are dead, every firstborn, that would, there's no exclusion stated here for the children of Israel. Now, he does say that against the children of Israel, no dog shall wet its tongue, neither against man or beast, okay? But every firstborn in Egypt of the Egyptians and of the children of Israel are to die. But God provides a way of escape through the Passover lamb when he commands the children of Israel to take a lamb or or a goat and take its blood and place it on the doorposts and the lintels of the house. And that they shall place themselves within that home where the blood is on the door. And when God passes by and he sees the blood, he will pass over them and not allow the destroyer to come and to strike down the firstborn who is covered by the blood. So what God did is he took that which was dead and brought it to life through the covering of the blood. And because he brought the firstborn to life, God says, I have redeemed them. They're mine. They belong to me. So you will consecrate them. You will sanctify them unto me. You will set them apart. And in doing so, they're setting the children of Israel set the firstborn apart to God because they belong to him because he purchased them with a price but then also it's a remembrance of how God provided the way of escape and the hope and the, he says the blood will be a sign for you right that's a sign for you to see and to behold and to remember and it's also a sign that speaks for you on your behalf such that God sees it and passes over and there's no plague of destruction upon you when he strikes the land of Egypt. And that application of how he brought that deliverance is a picture of the deliverance that he brings through Yeshua. Right? The scripture speaks about how everyone is shut up under sin and the wages of sin is death. So everyone is really a dead man walking just as the firstborn in Egypt were dead men walking but for the power of God to bring redemption. And he did it 
it then through the blood of the Passover lamb, and he does it now through the blood of Yeshua, who is our Passover lamb. The one who brings forth covenant promises, the one who brings forth life, and the one through whom we have hope because of the life he lives. Now, I was drawn to John 12 this week. And in John 12, Yeshua has come into Bethany. He has just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And he is within the final week before his, before his Passover, okay? And the scripture says, so he, he's come into this place. He, uh, Mary has anointed him. Judas Iscariot has gotten offended because he wanted to steal the money. And now we're coming into this place where it's what, it's what in, in Christianity is commonly known as Palm Sunday. Right? And within, uh, it's also known as Shabbat Hagadol. But the next day, a large crowd had come to the feast, had come to Passover, heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Yeshua found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Yeshua was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So Yeshua is coming in to Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, coming from Bethany, which is to the east of Jerusalem. And he's coming in most likely on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, according to, if we look at the timelines, it's a possibility that this day was the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan is known as Lamb Selection Day. It's spoken of in this week's portion in God's announcement of the new moon when he says in Exodus 12, Verse 3, speak to the entire assembly of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they shall take for themselves each man a lamb or kid for each father's house, a lamb or kid for the household. But if the household will be too small for a lamb or a kid, then he and, and his neighbor who is near his house shall take according to the number of people. Everyone according to what he eats shall be counted for the lamb or kid. An unblemished lamb or kid, a male within its first year, shall it be for you. From the sheep or goats shall, shall you take it. It shall be yours for examination until the fourteenth day of this month, and the entire congregation of the assembly of Israel shall slaughter it in the afternoon. They shall take some of the blood and place it on the doorposts and the lintels of the house in which they will eat it. But God introduces the Passover lamb to the children of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month you shall take a lamb into your home. It shall be a spotless lamb without blemish, and you shall examine it until the fourteenth day of the month. And then at that time you will slaughter in the afternoon 
and you will take its blood and place it on the doorposts. And the blood will be a testimony for you. It'll be a sign for you. Okay. Within each of these aspects, we're seeing a picture of Yeshua who is our Passover lamb. Here it is. Yeshua is coming into town, likely on the 10th day, on lamb selection day. The children of Israel who believe in him are going out with palm branches which, and waving them before him, which is a part of a messianic expectation. He's coming from the east, which is also a messianic expectation, and he's riding on a donkey, which in itself is actually part of a messianic expectation as well. Now, it's actually a, an omen as opposed to a positive sign that he would come mounted on a donkey. And it's tied, it's, it's tied back to Zechariah 9.9, okay? In Zechariah 9.9, the scripture says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, so you say, well, how is that a bad omen, right? It says, Rejoice, behold, your king is coming to you. Well, the sages' expectation was that redemption had a time in which it would come. And if the, if the children of Israel merited salvation, he would come not on a donkey, but as a conquering king. But if they did not merit redemption, then he would come lowly, humble, and mounted on a donkey. Right? So Yeshua coming mounted on a donkey was assigned to the children of Israel that they were in need of redemption. Right, that he had come bearing light and calling them to repentance, but the leaders had rejected him. And as such, there was a coming judgment. And he was coming as one who was humble, mounted on a donkey. And even the aspect that he was coming mounted on a donkey was tied to a, to a remembrance of the Exodus from Egypt. Right, because as we read earlier in Exodus 13, the scripture said that you will sanctify the firstborn of male and of beast. And it mentions specifically a donkey being redeemed. Now, a donkey is the only non-kosher animal that is counted in the redemption of the firstborn. Which is why it specifically has rules of axing the back of its neck or redeeming it with money. Now, the firstborn can be redeemed with money, or it can be offered up to God as a sacrifice. But a donkey cannot be offered as a sacrifice because it's not a kosher animal fit for God's altar. So that's why the back of its neck is axed. And the sages speak of this, of the donkeys mentioned specifically, primarily because of the miracle that took place with the use of donkeys in the Exodus. So they speak of saying the children of Israel had to quickly take all of their possessions and go, right? They were driven out rapidly, they, so rapidly that their bread didn't have time to become leavened. So too, they also didn't have time to prepare all the uh, carriages that they would need all of the wagons they would need in order to transport their goods. So they had to load more 
more than what would be normal onto the donkeys. And the donkeys carried a burden that was greater than they could normally carry. And in that, there was a miracle. And as such, there's a remembrance tied to the donkey with the exodus from Egypt. So fascinating, right? We've got all kinds of things taking place with Yeshua coming into Jerusalem at this time that are connected back with the exodus from Egypt. All signs pointing to him being the Messiah who is coming and who is the Redeemer. The one who is the Redeemer. And there's many more, there, there are many aspects that we could go into in speaking of how Yeshua, or that the Passover lamb is a type of Yeshua. We'll go into those more likely in the book of Leviticus as we lead into, into the time of Passover. But for now, we're seeing pictures of Yeshua coming in, mounted on a donkey. Yeshua, who is the firstborn of creation, coming as a redeemer. And he's the one who was bringing hope to a people who really didn't have hope. The people who sat in darkness and the light began to shine on them. Now, back in John 12, back in John 12, Yeshua is entering Jerusalem. People are coming out to greet him. And they're recognizing after the fact the connection of the donkey to Yeshua and, and the, uh, the aspect of him being Messiah. And there were certain Greeks who were going up to worship at the feast. When it says Greeks, it's speaking of the Hellenists, the Hellenist Jews. This is in John 12, verse 20. They came to him. Uh, skipping forward to verse 23. Yeshua answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to, to life eternal. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But Yeshua answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Yeshua said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light 
that you may become sons of light. And when Yeshua had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So Yeshua is explaining to the disciples and to those who have gathered around him that he must die for them to live. Now, they don't understand it at this time, right? Because it doesn't line up with what their expectation is at the moment, right? Their expectation is that Messiah is coming and he will be, he will be forever. How is it that you say that the Messiah must be lifted up? How is it that you say that he's going to die? He needs to stay with us. But Yeshua doesn't go into the full explanation, but what he says is that you have the light among you right now. Walk in the light. He's calling them to be children of the light. Just as we were reading earlier in 1 Peter, the call to walk in the light and to be found as people who follow him and are revealed as his own. Now, Yeshua spoke about how the light is among the children of Israel. He's coming into town on the 10th day. He, for the next several days, he is in the temple teaching. And when he's there in the temple teaching, when you read the text, you'll find that they come and they challenge him. They ask him questions. They ask him to give understanding, to explain who he is. He's being examined just as the Passover lamb was being examined until the 14th day at noon. And he is found faultless. He's found without sin, such that many times people would stop challenging him because they see the wisdom with which he speaks. But Yeshua speaks about the light being among the children of Israel and how they're to walk by the light and not to walk in the darkness. And even within this, I find there's a connection back to the story of the Exodus. For the ninth plague was the plague of darkness. Okay, Darkness covered the land. And let's read in Exodus 10. Actually, I don't know if it's Exodus 10. Perhaps it is. Yes, it is. Exodus 10, 21. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So in this ninth plague, God sends darkness on the land. And the sages understand, okay, well, I'll back up with this just a little bit. So the traditional understanding of how the plagues came is that there were three sets of three plagues, 
followed by the death of the firstborn. And each plague would be announced. Or, okay, so let me, let me explain this a little further. So you have the first three plagues. The first plague, Moses comes to Pharaoh at the river and says this plague is going to come. The plague comes, it lasts for seven days. And then there's a period of time where there's warnings about the next plague to come. And so the thought, the traditional thought is that each plague had one month of time. So the plague would last seven days, then there would be three weeks there would be warning, then there would be another plague. Okay, the second plague would come with a warning at Pharaoh's palace. It would last a week, and then there would be a time. The third plague in each set would come without warning. Okay, so there was a warning at the river, a warning at the temple, and then no warning. And these were repeated over and over again. Now, when we come into these final plagues, plagues 8, 9, and 10, this is where I start to see a little bit of uh, not seeing that that timeline could have taken place. Because in the seventh plague, when the, high, when the hail and the fire fell, it says that the, the uh, barley was ripe and it was destroyed. Okay, so if the barley was ripe, then it was at the time of the, the month of Nisan coming about. Because the month of Nisan is declared when the barley is ripe. Okay, so it would have been in this, in this time frame. So then you have the eighth plague, which was the locusts. And then you had the ninth plague, which was the darkness. And so the sages say when the darkness came, there were two sets of three days of darkness. And the first, and it's because it was repeated twice. Here in the verses that we just read in Exodus 10, 21, he says, Stretch forth your hand toward the heaven. There shall be darkness on the land of Egypt. The darkness will be tangible. He stretched forth his hand toward the heavens, and there was thick darkness for a three-day period. And then no man could see his brother, nor could anyone rise from his place a three-day period. <clears throat> so their thought is that in this, there was a total of six days of darkness with two sets of three. Whether you go with three days of darkness or six days, the darkness is said to have been tangible to the point where it wasn't just an absence of light, that there was deep darkness that covered the land. And the scripture says that they couldn't move from their place. So thick, they could not move from their place. But the children of Israel, they had light in their dwellings. Okay, the scripture says they had light in their dwellings. And so when I look at this and think about it, Sure, it could be the aspect that God makes a distinction between the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, between the children of Egypt and the children of Israel, just as he's done in prior plagues. He put darkness on the Egyptians, but he didn't put darkness on the children of Israel. <clears throat> but the scripture doesn't say that they had light in Goshen. It said they had light in their dwellings. So I like to think of it as that this plague of darkness came and it lasted for three days. Now, if the... Okay, I'm sorry if I'm kind of butchering the telling of this timeline, but I'm trying to paint this picture. So you've got three days of darkness. The three days of darkness ends 
with Pharaoh calling Moses to him and saying, you know, take this away, take away this darkness. And Pharaoh says, leave my presence. And if I see you again, you're going to die. Okay. And, the, and so actually we, we didn't, we didn't go as far as reading this just a moment ago. I did stop. But if we continued on in Exodus 10, 28, Pharaoh says, go from me, beware, do not see my face anymore. For if you see my, on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Okay, now then in verse 4, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Okay, so what takes place is that the plague of darkness is coming to an end. Pharaoh says, don't ever see me again or you're going to die. And Moses says, you're right. Okay, Moses is turning to leave in anger, and God says, tell him one more thing. And he says, tonight, God's going to bring the death of the firstborn. So we know that this plague of darkness led directly into the death of the firstborn. Otherwise, Moses could not have come back into his presence. Okay, so the darkness took place here on the 14th, the 12th, and the 11th, at least, those three days. Now, on the day before that, on the 10th day of the month, God had commanded the children of Israel to take a lamb into their homes where they would keep it for inspection until the 14th day in the afternoon when they would offer it as a sacrifice and when they would put the blood on the doorposts. That day they were going to offer it was the day that Moses said, tonight God is coming through the land. The 10th day was the last day that they had light outside their homes and they brought the lamb in Darkness fell over all the land, but there was light in the homes where they could inspect the land and where they could move about in their dwellings. And I think it was the lamb that gave them the light. If that makes sense. So where the lamb is, that's where the light was. Where they had brought the lamb, according to God's command, that's where they had light and there where they had life, where they had freedom. And then through that lamb offered up to God, the blood spoke as a testimony to them and for them. And through the sanctification of the firstborn, the children of Israel were brought out of slavery and bondage into freedom, into new life, into new beginnings. Their lives were preserved and not only preserved, but made new through the power of God's hand. And so we have the people who could sit in darkness, but yet be illuminated by the light and through the light have life. Micah 7, 7 through 8 says, Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the Lord, the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. 
Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Right? Micah is saying, there's hope for renewal even when I sit in darkness because the Lord is my light. He is my salvation. He's the one in whom I trust. And even Yeshua says that he entrusted, well, the scripture says that Yeshua entrusted himself to the one who was able to raise him from the dead, right? So that Yeshua was able to offer himself up and trust and know that God would bring about his redemption and that through Yeshua's offering, God would bring redemption to the whole world. Yeshua says, I'm the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light which gives life. That's John 8, 12. So the path that God chose for redemption, as demonstrated in Exodus and demonstrated through the life of Yeshua, was that he would bring death, but out of death, he would bring life. God brings death and gives life and causes salvation to flourish. Because he knows and he demonstrates that out of a place of hopelessness, he can bring hope. He can create an anchor of the soul for us and bring freedom to us. You know, one other thing, um, Rabbi Foreman speaks about the blood placed on the doorposts. And he speaks of it as being a sign, a sign of rebirth, right? We're talking about renewal. We're talking about uh, freedom and life through the blood, through the Passover lamb. And he tells the story in the aspect of you take this Passover lamb and the way in which it was roasted, it was placed on stakes, right? On wooden stakes. And it was cooked upside down. And then the children of Israel are all to eat it hidden within homes in a confined space. And they're to eat it with their waist girded, with their staff in their hand. They're to eat the Passover in haste while this one time while they're in Egypt, getting ready for a great and momentous deliverance. And the way out of this place is through a door. And this door is covered with blood. And when the time comes, they're going to burst forth through this door, through this opening, and depart the land of Egypt. He said, it's a picture of the womb. It's a picture of the womb where a child, usually head down, is in a place ready to burst forth, but it cannot leave until the time is right. And when it does, it passes through an opening. And in a birth, of course, there's blood, right? And so you go through the opening in haste into a new life, into a new beginning. So he likens the whole picture of this Passover evening as a preparation for a birth, for a renewal, for a new beginning. 
we're reborn through Messiah, right? Just as the children of Israel were reborn into a new nation out of Egypt, so too through Messiah we're born into a new life. Praise God. And so we come into new life. We come out of slavery into freedom, having been acquired, purchased with a price. Just as God said that the firstborn of the children of Israel are mine, because he had bought them with a price, so too all those who are trusting in Messiah are God's. They've been purchased with a price, purchased from every people of every nation, of every tongue, to be a people unto God, living by his light that's been revealed. In Psalm 33, verses 18 through 22, the scripture says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. I just felt like this passage was such a summary of the message this morning and the hope that we have in God and his steadfast love and trusting in his holy name, trusting in his compassion and his faithfulness to save our soul from death and keep us alive through any famine that may come. Right, that he gives life and causes us to flourish by the power of his hand. So as we come through this week's portion and see God's deliverance, we remember the exodus from Egypt. And we remember the exodus from sin and death that we have through Yeshua, our Messiah. And then with that, we follow Yeshua wherever he goes, being led by his light and having his light shine in us and through us as a testimony. His blood speaks for us and his light shines through us as a testimony to him and his works. So may we be found faithful in walking with him. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and love. We thank you, Lord, for the life that we have through Yeshua. We thank you, Lord, that he is the light. Lord, we ask that you would guide us, direct our footsteps, help us to hear your voice, help us to be able to see the path that you've laid before us, to walk faithfully before you. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great redeemer. Thank you, Lord, that you have glorified your son, that you have sanctified your firstborn. Lord, may we sanctify him as Lord in our hearts, all for your glory and your great name. We bless you and give you praise in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.